Hello and welcome again to Handball in Numbers, the Handballytics podcast. My name is Mark Hawkins. I'm joined again by Julian Rooks. Hello, Julian. Hi, Mark. And as we're sort of careering very quickly towards the, the end of the group stages of the tournaments now, we can see the tournament really starting to, to take shape. And after four rounds of matches yesterday, completing the men's, then we have France, Spain, Germany and Norway uh, in the four qualification places in Denmark, Egypt, Sweden and Portugal with some, uh, some places uh, still to be decided on, on the men's side and on the women's side we have yeah, Norway, Netherlands, Montenegro uh, through to the, the knockout stages in Sweden, Russia or the Russian Olympic Committee, Spain uh, through and a few. Again, the fourth place is still to be decided there with some interesting matches coming into, into the last days of competition in the group stages. Yeah, so we don't focus on, on one match today, but talk more in general. The same goes for the metrics, but one metric that we'll focus a bit on, which is shot quality. It's not that much new to introduce because we've already talked a bit about it in our last episode, but shot quality is simply the average goal probability of, well, of all the shots taken. Today we're joined by Dennis Boyensen, a trainer or has been a trainer in the top women's league uh, in Denmark for, for some years with Ajax Copenhagen and now moves over to the top league in men's handball with Lem V. Uh, hello, Dennis. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Nice to, nice to have you here. And uh, Yeah, as I said in the intro there, you're about to make the move from women's handball to men's handball. How, how do you see the differences being in terms of, or have you analyzed things and seen uh, there are differences that you will need to accommodate or work with or things that you'll be able to try or not be able to try between the women's team and the men's team? Yeah, of course, there is the physics. That's obvious for, for everyone. But for me, in the statistical You, I would say the efficiency of the men's teams are much higher than the women's team uh, if you look in the compare the two leagues. Mm -hmm. So that's something that you have to struggle with and I have to be more ready to score more goals in the in the games mm -hmm. and be more efficient when you got the ball. If you see in the Danish leagues, then there are less technical areas in the men's league. So that will be a factor and the safe percentage is a bit higher in the women's league than in the men's league. So there will be some spots that are mm -hmm. different. And a little bit difficult to tell because there's only been three uh, or three or three and a half rounds of matches in the competition so far. But we have seen some teams on the women's side playing with a little bit higher pace, uh, a little bit quicker, more attacks in the game. Is this something also uh, you've seen in Denmark? And are there any reasons that you see for that difference I, i can't see it in the danish leagues as well but but i think in men's handball just you don't see the the teams are very good to decide whether they run or not so then they just walk up the field or they run and i think that the transition game is more important in women's handball than in men's handball I think that the reason maybe might also be the turnovers or the technical faults, which are a bit higher, which probably then result in, in fast breaks uh, or transition game, whatever, and makes the game then in general quicker. I think that might be, be a reason too, for example, for the last two World Cup, when you compare the men's World Cup from this year and uh, the women's World Cup from 2019, there are about two more technical faults per 50 possessions. So, yeah, that might be a reason why the, the pace was also a bit, a bit higher. 
just going to pick up on that that we've seen Norway's women's team in particular play brilliantly on the in the transition and they're averaging a bit over sort of 60 attacks a game and we haven't really seen any of the men's teams play that many attacks are there differences in the men's and the women's game that you think mean it's harder for the men's teams to play quickly on the transition or do you think they're choosing not to because they're happier in the set attack it makes the game look very easy for Norway when when they play for example and I think it you know they've been very dominant with it but it's we haven't seen it so much in in the men's side do you see any particular reasons for that yeah and the Netherlands women's as well yeah have been playing with very high pace and and now I see the Swedish team as well try to, to make some counterattacks. I think that was one of the main reasons that they won today over Brazil. So, but I would say there is uh, two styles. There is the Norwegian style uh, in the men's teams who have run a lot and played with, what do you say, a two-way spiller. Yeah, uh, yeah, two-way players, yeah. Two, two, two-way players. Uh, mm-hmm. And then yeah, on the other side, you will see uh, Denmark, Spain, who often changes two from defense to attack. When you see Denmark play, uh, especially if they play with a so high efficiency in attacks that they don't need to run because they will score a lot of goals, yeah. six against six. And if they got any problem, then they will just play seven against six. And the development also uh, often starts from the top and go to the bottom. And when people see that the Danish team can play with that high efficiency, then there is no reason to, to, to do anything. And then you can easily live with uh, changing two person from to attack and say okay our third wave wouldn't be that effective and also Spain do that uh, yesterday I saw it was Duchebayev only playing defense so they could play that play that five against one defense and if you are that good in both ends then you don't have to take the chances to play and then you can specialize uh, yeah I th- you know it's incredibly interesting and talk I think it you know something we we don't have the ability to to analyze yet but it would be very interesting to see the if there's a, a correlation which I expect there would be between the the amount of attack defense substitutions a team make and the the pace in which they play at you know we've seen also a little bit with Germany that they were able to in the men's team they were able to play the transition with uh, Pekela and Gola and then change afterwards. So they, obviously they're making the changes, but still trying to play very quickly as well. So I think it's there's still the ability to do that if, if they choose to. Yeah. yeah. So, and there is another part, which I think will come in the future to play the, the transition game with seven against six. So when you are defending with two pivots, then you can run up and then the goalkeeper can get fast out and then you can get the closest uh, backcourt player in and maybe try to push a little bit in that. Olympique, for example, who I've gone to train now, did yeah. it a lot last year with, with okay percentages. Yeah. But you don't see that in, on the national team. But I think no, it's interesting. Yeah, I think so. I think that's possibly a little bit to do with the differences in the amount of time to work with the players. Yeah. But I think, like you say, you know, we talked a little bit previously about shot uh, quality and it, you raised the example of, of Denmark there and how good their attack is and the high quality shots they get almost every time. We've seen uh, Matthias Gissel been phenomenal in terms of all the chances, almost all the chances he had in the first uh, two or three matches were of 
such a high quality, so close to the goal that it's almost not, uh, yeah, the, they can get the good chances without rushing on the fast break. So they can do it in their control and their speed. But we've seen, or some of the expected goals models that myself and, and Julian work with see a higher expectation that the men's teams uh, will score from the wing compared to the women's. That appears to be the biggest difference between expected goals areas of the court between the men and the women. What, firstly, what do you, do you put that down to? Have you, you know, do you experience that with, you know, between Ajax and MB? And is that something that will affect how you, you know, systems that you play and how you, how you coach the teams? Yeah, yeah, uh, very much, I would say. In the women handball, as you said, the wing shot with low percentage, and then it's much easier to defend if you, have, if you don't have to defend six, but only five and a half player then you can do it a lot easier. For me, it's a, a very important part also. I think the way you defend as wings is changing a lot. Uh, these days, you, do, you, you couldn't put your, the hand on the hips anymore. So the chances that you can chase on the wing shots in men league where you can jump so long could be affordable because uh, if they touch you, then there will be penalty and maybe also two minutes. And I also think the high in the defense has to be a little bit, you have to go a little bit higher because the shots from long distance is also with a little bit higher quality. So you, you can't stand that close in, in the men's uh, defense than you can in women's handball. And you can also still, also stand very narrow, uh, is, is my opinion. That's how we did it in Ajax. We were... Yeah willing to get some shots from distance and some shots from the wing mm -hmm. to try to uh, avoid uh, shots from the pivot and breakthroughs. In, in general, I think that the, the shot with the worst quality or the well, well, the average percentage is the lowest is usually the backcourt shot or the long distance shots. And sadly, I don't have the numbers for, for the women, but for, for the men in the last well, 10, 15, 20 years, the share of backcourt shots has gone, gone down From numbers perspective, this makes obviously sense since it's the lowest quality shot. Obviously, it depends on the situation, obviously, but but in, in average, um, it's it's the lowest percentage shot with the lowest goal probability. Do you see this trend continue? Maybe similar to basketball, where mid-range shots used to be well the, the most popular shots taken by guys like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. And today, it's almost ostracized to shoot from there because it's the least valuable shot. Do you see a similar trend continue in handball? I see that long distance shots is getting, uh, as you say, less and less. You also see it with Gissel, who exactly, doesn't yeah. shoot any shots from long distance. But I think you will have to have one player on the field who can open a little bit off because when the men get that big, then if they should just stand near the six meter line, then there will be there wouldn't be enough space. So you have to have both things. I think. Yeah, that's the difference and to basketball, I think, is that with the, the spacing aspect, with their three-point line, obviously they're all standing around that. And the thing that's uh, that where they don't shoot is from the from the distance between the basket and the three-point line. But in, in handball, you obviously don't have that area between anything. You just have the goal area and you try to get the closest. But, well, spacing, if, if there's uh, everyone standing around there, well, the, the defense knows, knows where to guard and... Uh, 
uh, obviously you you have to to space things up somehow so yeah and the physics aspects when your defense uh, in basketball you can't touch that much yeah, yeah. But in handball you can tackle and you can mm. there's much more physics in the defense i also think that makes a major difference one final thing i don't know how yeah, much time you've had with the with the guys in lmb yet but for, i mean the first part is do you use or do you give a lot of statistics to your players or do you use that um, sort of information with them and if you do have you is there a difference in attitude between the men and the women do uh, you know one set of players like more information not worry about it so much or do you have you seen any difference in in attitudes or is it both both quite similar i think that's quite similar it it depends on which person you're speaking with some think it's very very interesting and other think it's very boring or yeah. not that interesting they play with their heart and with their passion and other are more uh, related to facts and yeah. i also think uh, that's one of the the main uh, you have to translate those uh, statistics for your players and you also have to listen because i think there will be a, a quantitative uh, part with the statistics but also a qualitative part with where you are asking your players uh, how do you feel about that and yeah, yeah. you also know uh, you are for your goalkeepers do they feel uh, more confident uh, with the shots between one and two or do they feel more confident with the wing shots and so that's also an important part for me to speak mm -hmm. with my players about things and how they feel about it because they have to do it on the field yeah it's uh... It's a great point. It's, I mean, like you mentioned earlier about, you know, the wingers losing confidence if they miss the first one or two shots. And we spoke with Rasmus Van Beek yesterday and he was saying similar things regarding the goalkeepers about, you know, uh, shots they should take and shots that, you know, they're probably not expected to take and how that impacts, you know, if they're supposed to take one from nine meters, the defense is very frustrated about it and it can have an impact on the confidence and mentality of the rest of the team which is obviously what uh, the numbers can give us a big part of the information but we have to bring in the human aspect alongside it to, uh, to make them both work together yeah and and i think it's it's very important in the evaluation of the games to see mm -hmm. on the statistics how did we perform because if we perform well uh, over time then we will also win more games mm -hmm. If we perform worse, then over time we will lose uh, yeah, lose yeah. more points. So I, I know in a short tournament like the, the Olympics, it could be a little bit different. But when you play in a league with uh, 15 teams and you play 28 matches, then you have to also look a little bit about the processes and the yeah. performance and have some some key performance indicators Yeah, yeah. you look at. Yeah, exactly. That's also uh, obviously one one thing that, well, with all the numbers about the Olympics, we I think we should always keep in mind that it's just, well, the sample size is relatively small compared to when you are really play in a league uh, with two games against each team and no knockout stage. Well, the, the numbers are always more reliable the more you have and the bigger the sample size is in the end. Well, so I think that was really a perfect ending for, for today. Thank you, Dennis, for being our guests and for taking the time. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. So next up on Monday, we'll be joined by 
uh, Oliver Brozig and Eina Ern Jonsson. Eina will be joining us directly from on the ground in Tokyo to discuss some individual player metrics and all-encompassing statistics there. Until then, as always, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's everywhere at Handpolitics or go to, to handpolitics.te where you will get all the, the stats uh, you need about the Olympics. Until Monday, hear you then. <laughs>